0: I'm Billy. I'm Drew. This is Pilot Club. Drew, how are you? I'm good. I'm ha- good. Have you recovered from lockdown last night?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm working my way through it.
0: We went to see um, the Doug Lyman film Lockdown, which is set during lockdown. I mean, this is not Film Club, but just to give some... It, it's set during lockdown, and... I think it's just about the most miserable film I've seen I, I in the last decade. I think
1: it's fair to say that
0: lockdown and the
1: lockdown was not very cinematic. No. And this movie proved it.
0: And it was also we saw it at um at Chatswood Mandarin. I I find the puffy chairs there very challenging. <laughs>
1: it was a long movie to sit through I know, on, I, but a, on an uncomfortable chair. I don't
0: I I just I don't like these new fancy multiplex chairs. I just needed a good, austere chair with proper back support. <laughs> like this on my feet's off the ground,
1: there's no lumber support. The way you view chairs, cinema chairs is you, treat
0: them mean keep them keen but not not too mean so remember we saw Fat Man the Mel Gibson film at Reading Cinema's Auburn you like to be kind of mildly abused by your chair well I, well, I mean,
1: the, the, not they're, not cradled and comfort the, the spectrum right so remember we saw, we saw was it Fat Man the Mel Gibson film you have a masochistic relationship with chairs
0: uh, well let, 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 let's talk about the spectrum when we saw Fat Man the chairs there were way too they were like beds so I requested a chair a proper chair from management mm. but they got it was like a barbecue chair so like I need a middle ground like I need a chair that's not i don't want a bed i don't want to lie down is it
1: the chair or is it that you're not a fan of the semi-recumbent position
0: well i think it's both like i just but it, it's mainly <laughs> back support a fan of that position I, I fall asleep i don't mm. like watching movies lying down so you know lockdown was a long film to watch <laughs> on puffy chairs so i'm just i'm still i'm still processing that today
1: <laughs> you're working your way through
0: it i'm all working my way through it but luckily we have a fairly upbeat. Yes. Show to start today. So yes. today's show is a creation of it's, it's a Tina Fey show, isn't it? It's created well, executive, partly executive, executive produced, produced by, by her,
1: which well, you know who knows actually what that means. I think the she's ma- given her approval to it.
0: I think the main character here feels like a Tina Fey surrogate, oh, right? Definitely. Like so, the premise of the show is it's, it's called Girls Five Ever. Um, it's about a girl group called Girls Five Ever from the late nineties, early two thousands, who like most boy bands and girl bands in that era, fizzled pretty quickly. And it takes place in the present. It opens with a rapper using a Girls 5 Ever sample. Little Stinker. Little Stinker, (laughs) using a Girls 5 Ever sample, ASAP Stinker. So using a Girls 5 Ever sample pretty randomly, it gives them a, a, a brief glimpse at a second life, and they reunite to be on his show. And that's basically the premise. And think about where they might go from here. So... There's five girls. One of them, we find out, died in an infinity pool accident in 2004. Or did she? I
1: feel like there could be a surprise twist there. I agree. And I was wondering about this because she's... <laughs> she had an infinity pool accident. She's, <laughs> she swam over the edge. Exactly. <laughs> and, and
0: she's played by Ashley Park, who I really like. And yeah. who I think it's really charismatic. She kid. has a lot of good comic chemistry in
1: the in the flashbacks. Absolutely. I was quite disappointed that in fact, she wasn't present, like I guess, in the main part of the show.
0: i the four, out of the five of them, she's... Seems like one of the best already. So yeah. I hope they don't just deal with her through flashbacks no. or inspirational flashbacks. I hope they're, like, exactly. I hope there's a twist and she comes back into it. The others are Dawn, played by Sarah Borelis. Borelis? feel I have seen that name written because I love music. I've seen that name written everywhere for 15 years. Oh, so i she's, ne- s- she's, singing, she's oh, a Oh, yeah, she's a musician. Oh, okay. But I, I've never once heard it spoken oh, aloud. Okay. So Sarah Borelis... <laughs> she, she plays Dawn who's kind of like she a, could have convinced me she was an actress yeah well she, she's I thought good. she was that good she's good in it yeah and she's kind of like a bit of a Tina Fey surrogate right yeah. similar, oh, sense, similar sense of humour I mean she's her own actress obviously but it's the kind of poise like she's the voice of reason in the show um, then you have uh, Busy Phillips who she plays Summer and Summer is kind of the dits in the group she didn't keep in time with harmonies she you know had kind of wacky catchphrases at the end so she's the second character uh, then we have uh, Wiki, played by Renee Elise Goldsberry, who has told everyone for years that she has an exclusive fashion life, but actually turns out to be working shooting geese at an airport, so she, she, she's desperate for it. She gets paid by the geese. And then you have Paula Pell as Gloria, who was kind of came out as a lesbian shortly after the band and in, in, I'm not sure if it's a joke or not, but in the show, being a lesbian seems to mean being 25 years older than everybody else. So, uh, I think that's one of the recurring jokes. It's though. one of the recurring was, jokes. And, it, and that, that one it does It does really work. So, you know, I, I really like this pilot for a couple of reasons. Like, obviously, I have a great nostalgia for this period because this is when, you know, we grew up. But I also think that there has been no kind of popular music before or since that managed to capture poise like the boy band or the girl band like there was something so poised and so kind of incredibly alluring about that kind of posse as it existed on the turn of the millennium okay. and you you know, at its height, bands like Spice Girls, this is obviously based on, and mm. Backstreet Boys, they kind of exuded this confidence that their fame could never end. Yes. And a lot of their songs were about their fame never ending. So yes. Backstreet's Back, Spice Up Your Life. <laughs> like, their songs were about their own continuity, their own longevity. Yeah. And just this assurance that this poise could never die.
1: Yes. Which, There's a wonderful satire of that in the beginning when they... They sing their song, or well, we'll be we'll be famous forever. We'll be young forever.
0: Exactly. So in this Flash case, forward. so exactly. So their main song, like famous forever. Exactly. It's about fame, but it's also about their brand forever. So, but at the same time, you know, the flip side of that is, I think there have been few musical acts that have captured the fleeting quality of fame, like girl bands and boy bands. And there's actually a moment in this where the rapper Lil Stinker (laughs) says to them, you've actually made me realise that fame is fleeting. So there was something about the way that boy bands and girl bands crystallised fame on the cusp of the millennium. I think that this totally gets, looking back at it 20 years later. I
1: think there's something also very rich um, in, I suppose, it's a a fertile comic terrain to mine. Um, These washed-up former girl band members trying to sort of live or assimilate into regular life Mm. but also being kind of vaguely recognised in in some ways and maybe it's been done before but I don't think I don't think to the same extent no and um, there's just something there's something absurd and incongruous about them holding down regular day jobs yes. and you know, going like ba- through the banalities of parenthood. It's and- like
0: going to like, get your tax done and it's baby spice. Yes,
1: exactly right. Yeah. So uh,
0: it's, a really, it's a really
1: fertile um, comic territory.
0: I feel like, too, like, part of the absurdity is how fame has changed. Like Now, with so much digital technology and so many platforms, fame is so niche. Like You can mm. be famous on TikTok but no one outside of TikTok's ever heard of you. Look, like, there was something about the turn of the millennium. Like there was, it was a culmination of like an older kind of fame where everybody, everywhere in the world knew you. Yes. So I feel like someone like Jerry Halliwell from the Spice Girls, like circa 2000, wherever she went in the say, in the Western world, mm. anybody would recognise yes. her. So it's weird to think of her now as just being another person. No, I think that's interesting. In the interim?
1: No, in the sense that I mean this was this cusp of the, the new millennium was the last time there was really almost a, a mass market yes for fame for minting, a media convergence. A kind of, yes, that's yep. right, like a kind of a kind of machinery mm. for minting a global superstardom. Yes. yes. And but also because of the lack of social media at the time, yes. there was also a means of disappearing and vanishing off the map. Yes. Vanishing without a trace. Yes. No one really had a social media presence. You weren't really a sense of you weren't really aware of it of a star's sort of gradual waning no. and decline. So it's quite possible that the next time you saw someone who was uber famous ten years ago... They could be, like, was, on a reality show. Yeah, exactly, or was serving you at Starbucks. Like, that was quite plausible. Today, not less so. I it think.
0: reminds me, and it's on my mind because I'm trying to lose weight, it reminds me of just the experience of, like, seeing the aunt from Sabrina turn up as the host on The Biggest Loser. Yes. Like, that weird... And this, this kind of brings me at something I think this series does so well. Like, not just... The peak of boy bands and girl bands in the late 90s and around the millennium, but the dissolution of boy bands and girl yes. bands in the early 2000s. Yes. And it reminds me especially <laughs> of the dissolution of the Spice Girls. Yes. So I've got to ask you, Drew, what, what's your favourite Spice Girls solo song? <laughs> what's your number one solo?
1: I, I didn't mind the Sporty Spice. Which the, one was that? The the collaborations with brian adams oh and they were good a few, the, a few of the sporty spice um singles but i appreciate baby spice has some good moments that's what uh, for me the number one has to what be took you, so what, long? took you so long hey
0: yeah 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 yeah
1: took you took me forever to see i'm right what was funny i think was that i suppose there was like an inverse relationship between their fame and the spice girls and how good their solo career was. i later. agree like ginger obviously the, the front girl of the spice yeah. girls I think he had the worst solo career. Scream
0: if you want to go faster. What was that? And she, and, and she had to resort to covers. It's yes. Raining Men. Whereas Baby Spies... That's desperate that's Yeah, desperate that's, that's desperate. But Baby... I mean, I, I know I'm harping on this, but what took you so long? The film clip, the crossroads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The kind of country yeah. twang. The more marginal ones yeah.
1: actually had probably more successful Better solo careers. careers but, but there was a gradual waning and then it almost a vanishing. It's, and I think in some ways in today, like... Stars on the One can kind of monetize their fame by becoming sort of on the, on the C list, D list through yep. Instagram or mm. becoming a kind of visible for their celebrity.
0: And it's also funny to see people who never stop the fandom. So I worked with someone at one of my previous jobs. I think she actually listens to a podcast. Hi, Ashley. Who had never stopped following Hanson. So wow. he, every Hanson album. She had gone, still, gone to the concert, bought the album. They're still producing them. They are. They they wow. toured Australia a couple of years ago, and you know there, there must be people out there who never stop following Baby Spice. Wow, Do you but, their voices have dropped. Well, <laughs> nice. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, I guess that they're in a way they're genuinely in the middle of nowhere now. Uh-huh. That's, a hand, that's a handsome. That's oh, a right. It's <laughs> a handsome. Okay. okay, let's let's get back on track. But I think this really captures that. That kind of dissolution and and that that weird process by which these units these posse's just became five people yes just became this collection of people yes which was so strange at the time
1: yes and I think one of my favourite tropes in any sort of um, film TV is put bring the band back together yes putting a team back together yes and this pilot is all about that I agree in some in some respects so and, and look it remains provisionally sort of provisionally by the end of the pilot they they're kind of back
0: together. And look, I thought, I really liked the comedy too. Like at times it was a bit broad, but other times you you could hear Tina Fey in there. Like it was sharp. It was like, lo- yes. I mean, I love the parody of the Americans. So there's a recurring joke where, and that, you know, um, the Sarah Beret's character Dawn and her partner sit down to watch the Americans. And the first time the excerpt is, how are we going to infiltrate the Russians? Through sex, <laughs> and the next time they sit down, it's like, "How are we going to recover the information? Sex again." <laughs> it's, it's got little kind of great yes. comic gems in there. Yes, I really agree. great timing. I
1: agree with. I completely agree with you in the sense that there are some characters are very broad, very broadly comic. The, di- I thought, the ditzy character, I, I the think, the ditzy is, character was probably less effective, and uh, also the, the Busy Phillips I think Summer also character,
0: the Renee Elise Goldsbury character, a bit like she's yes. pretty broad. As, I want the um. Oh, what's, it what's, was funny
1: when she was brought down. Yes, uh, a peg or two with yes. the, the goose scene. Uh, but, but who's, who's yeah. the
0: woman who's in who has died what's that actress's name alicia park
1: yes i'm not sure but she's yeah. great like
0: she has such great comic chemistry so i really hope they bring her back in
1: yeah i, I have a sense that it feels like they they have to in some respect yes. because she's so prominent in and, the flashbacks and
0: it seems strange for a comedy to have that kind of tragic kernel yes like they've got to reverse yes. it, in it some feels like of she way.
1: maybe has manufactured her own disappearance yeah. in some way so, um, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's yes, a publicity stunt.
0: Yes. But yeah, I, I agree.
1: Like, there were a lot of broad moments that I didn't think quite landed, but every third joke I found yes. actually incredibly funny. Really laugh so, out loud like, funny. Laugh out loud funny. Yeah. And I think a lot of those were courtesy of the Gloria character played by Paula Pell.
0: Oh, she's fantastic. <laughs> I mean...
1: She has going to be one of the best sort of sitcom... I suppose performances uh, that I've seen recently. The she, character she
0: has a great kind of self-deprecating comedy, and it really—you know—I think the character she is lesbian in real life. Like she's great at a certain kind of, kind of butch self-deprecation yes. alongside other ultra-feminine characters. So yes. is she in Wine Country, the Amy Poehler I, film?
1: I'm not sure. I haven't seen. I it
0: think really. she's in that. Like it's—it's okay. it's about a group of women. You know, who, like it's—you know—it's a girls' film. Yes. But she has this kind of gruff butch kind of self-deprecating quality that just. Yes. I don't know. It's a really good persona, yes. and it, it really it, and it and here it just it takes the edge off the frothiness a little bit as well. Like it's yes. just something about her that really works in yes. in counterpoint to the other characters. Yes, which I mean, is she's, she's a Billy girl.
1: <laughs> Listen, I think just there's just a, a couple of absolutely great jokes. Which yep. you know, obviously recounting a joke, is not very effective. But when she first meets them, yes. like she's a she's a, <laughs> she's a dentist. Yep, and she says, "Oh, you know, you know, when they legalized you know, same-sex yep. marriage." I was the first one to get divorced. Yeah, in no. New York State. Yeah, yeah. Just moments like that. <laughs> but I've got like I've, I've got a new I've got a new uh, person in my life. Unfortunately, it's my aging father. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, she's uh, she's just got a great great dead pants. Yeah, great dead Yeah, beat. yeah. <laughs> dead dead pants of yeah, 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 yeah. self deprecating comedy, and she's mm. she's very funny. Mm. She is very funny, and she
0: gives it that kind of sharpness. Yes, that prevents it she, being too sad. Yeah.
1: I feel. I feel like she's kind of almost channeling Melissa McCarthy in her really yep. funny early roles, like Absolutely. the bridesmaids. Yeah, or the, Melissa the McCarthy. Heat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So she has that same energy. Yeah, I agree. And um, yes, yeah, so it does. It does add a nice counterpoint.
0: So just to kind of finish, like, where do you think it's going to go? Like, I'm I'm wondering whether there's going to be like some comic stuff around them trying to adapt to the modern musical. Scene that would be great. Or trying to bring in like hip hop, like trying to update their yeah. sound.
1: Or I, I could just see them, for example, trying to trying to recapture their their star image by. You know the tragic kind of D-grade tour list, yes. for example. You know touring, yes. you know pubs in the middle of nowhere mm. in Arkansas or something like that. I yeah, think yeah. that would also be a very funny, yeah, yeah, comic tableau. But,
0: but I'm th- also I'm also rooting for them. Yes, I
1: want them to become big again. I do, but I, I want it to be a slow process. Yes, I agree. Yeah, A <laughs> slow and, and that, tragic and painful process, and that's more realistic as well. Process that's as well, that's more realistic. Uh, yeah, no, I think this is this is a, like. A show that it's just really rich and comic territory so
0: it's an interesting counterpoint to Rutherford Falls isn't it because we said we thought that had a lot of potential but this this has a kind of sharpness and an edge that that didn't have in its pilot no, I think or so. I, think, I think
1: partly because it's I mean the the cast are all playing women who are approaching middle age yep and you don't really see that that much in, in no. sitcoms and you know that visibility and that that's life stage without really being. Self-aggrandizing about it, without,
0: but also with a kind of a about it yeah, as well, that's, that's right. really kind that's of
1: contagious. R- that's right. Yeah, it's it's definitely the best the best comic series I've seen about women of of this this age group, and this yep. demographic.
0: Yeah. No. And, and look, I'm, I'm a hard in for it. I think it's and it's just great to have a really good half hour sitcom again. So I'm definitely continuing. this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. I'm 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 absolutely. And you know, I thought this was this was very funny.
0: I'm watching it five ever. <laughs> cool.
1: So on to our next pilot. Excellent. Now. In terms of wheelhouse, Billy, serial killer, documentary, America,
0: dilapidated
1: parts of New York. Where does this sit in terms of the Billy wheelhouse? Is this right in the wheelhouse? It's pretty high up. And
0: also at the same time, uh, Summer of Sam is my favourite Spike Lee film as well. I think it's easily his best film. Yes. It's most... Sorry, I just touched your foot under the table. <laughs> Apologize for that. You've taken up quite a lot of space under there. Oh, um, yeah. Anyway, back to Son of Sam. Um, well, um,
1: sorry, just, oh, just just Just, sorry, sorry. just wait, one correction. I haven't. One correction. Sons. You've heard of Son of Sam. But have you heard of Sons of Sam? What? <laughs> so, to establish a bit of background to this, Sons of Sam, or well, the Sons of Sam, colon, are Descent into Darkness... Mm. True crime really loves these double barrelled titles. They don't love they? them. They love them. Um, I think
0: they look good on the podcast kind of caption as well. Okay, just give it more legitimacy okay. somehow. Make somehow it seems more discerning choosing shows with a double barrelled title. I don't <laughs> I know don't why. Really get it.
1: I mean, the sons of Sam kind of know what it's about. Why, why do we need A descent into darkness. I think it's overkill. Yeah, no, that, that's titles. true. That's true. Um, so this is this is a show loosely about the famous American serial killer David Berkowitz, otherwise known as the Son of Sam. But the prism from which this show is framed is rather unusual. So it really is shot, really, from the perspective of author Maury Terry, who becomes convinced that the serial killer, David Berkowitz, did not act alone, but rather in concert with a dark web of Satanists, um, including, for example, Marilyn—not Marilyn, Marilyn Manson—well, <laughs> Charles Manson. <laughs> now that would be a twist. David Berk- Marilyn Manson, down the track. David Berkowitz was really into the album *Mechanical Animals*.
0: He just—he'd he listened to too much Nine Inch Nails, too much. Mar- he was really into industrial. He was massively into industrial.
1: <laughs> so it's really about. Um, that would be a good twist if he'd been be working it, it in would, concert it with would, Marilyn it Manson. Would, but who knows? Maury terry's mm, he has got some a yeah. <laughs> pretty interesting mm. conspiratorial. Theories going on, so I wouldn't put that past him. Uh, but classic it's, Terry. <laughs> it's partly about his um, his ongoing investigation, even after the case was actually formally formally wrapped up and solved, and in particular the connections that he made later on, possibly some of the pulling at some of the loose threads in the case and trying to tie them to larger larger movements and other other true crimes that occurred across America at the time. So. I thought this was, in many respects, this pilot, quite conventional in certain respects. So it, it is a quite a conventional procedural where we see the police hot on the trail of the son of Sam. We see, for example, the early stages of the killing, which I think the pilot does quite a good job of contextualizing. Mm. Now, I think really the strongest part of this pilot is the first 15 minutes where they, they lay out the context of late 1970s, New York, hmm. basically the city being bankrupt, a lot of the public servants having to be furloughed or outright laid off through major budgetary cuts. I feel like
0: I'm very aware of the word furloughed after lockdown last night. <laughs> there was a lot of talk about furlough in that film. Anyway, it's a good verb. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a good verb. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So New York City uh, basically undergoing you know, major, major structural change, hmm. major structural reforms. As a result of falling into an enormous amount of debt,
0: and it gives you a good sense, doesn't it? For example, how someone could fire a gun on a street into a car, and people around would just ignore it. Exactly it's right. Commonplace. And the there's murder gun, rate was gun, sky high. Gun crime. Everywhere. Gun
1: crime is ubiquitous. Mm. Um, there are just whole parts of of New York which are falling into complete dilapidation. Mm. This is well. quite extraordinary
0: footage. Oh, of, the
1: footage is incredible, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and and that really sets the scene for the. The way this I suppose the early parts of these the early part of this this spree or this serial killing spree was was framed which was really as a series of unrelated random mm. acts of gun violence which mm. were not unusual in New York at the time, and gradually, as the police come to realize the commonalities between these 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 crimes and in particular as David Berkowitz or Mr. Monster, son of Sam, mm. whatever different uh, monikers he was using at the time. Came to contact the the chief of the the investigation. We started becoming aware that this was actually the work of a serial killer. Mm. So, I think this this series captures that that sense that a incipient kind of, the sense of the incipient investigation yeah, really effectively. The zeitgeist. Yeah, it captures a sense of the time, the context mm. really effectively, and also the sense of fear and paranoia mm. of in New York at the time. The kind of tenor and, and heat of the time, mm. in some respect. I, I love all the. Um, the, the vox pop interviews they were doing yep. with random new yorkers i mean across the spectrum across the five boroughs it, it
0: uses stock footage from the time really effectively Absolutely. like it really captures the paranoia and the fear and we'll come back to this in, in a bit when we talk about this part of it more but in terms of the location the space like it it is a very scary idea because in a city you know when, when a serial killer strikes a city and strikes you know pedestrians in some cases or people who are you know like it's you can't. You have to go outside at some point yes. in a city. So that there is a real set. Like it's not like he's, he's just hitting people in remote areas. Like no, there's a real sense of widespread vulnerability. Yeah, he, he it, had,
1: there was a lot of mobility to his. It really captures his, that sense of as well. vulnerability.
0: Yeah. Th- those interviews at the yeah. time. Yeah. yeah.
1: So there was across a whole bunch of mm. boroughs. Uh, it was quite random. He was shooting people on their porch mm. in Lovers' Lanes. That was his main MO. Mm. But uh, in in parks as well. Mm. So it was very difficult. I suppose to. Protect yourself against mm. this sort of totally. this spate of violence in some in some respects. So that's why I guess the randomness and the the lack of a clear M mm. O really established a, a, a general climate of fear, which a lot of people read mm. as kind of being, a, I suppose, a metaphor for living in New York in this time of mm. just random acts of of gun violence mm. and, and broader sense of terror. So Absolutely, it yeah. captures that sense of a, the kind of terrorism of his mm. of his reign of violence in some in some respects. And mm. did recall a lot of the other great sort of David Berkowitz text in some ways so Spike Lee's Summer of Sam which I think like you were saying is one of his best absolutely his best films and *Mind Hunter* as well yeah. I don't know don't whether there's actually ever been a great Son of Sam movie in the sense of the the actual investigation as a procedure no,
0: and I think this brings like me to I think my perception of the pile is a bit different from yours like I understand where you're coming from Watching this, like, I realised I didn't know much about this case apart from what was mediated through Summer of Sam. So mm. what, I, what I liked about this pilot, actually, was that it was just a really compact overview of the case. Mm. And it's... Have you watched any more of the series? I have not, No, because no, it's an unusual pilot for the series because the premise of the series is a kind of expose of the possibility that David Berkowitz was acting in concert with other people mm. and with this kind of satanic organisation. Yeah. but John that, Wheaties. John Wheaties, exactly. <laughs> but that possibility only really kind of bookends the pilot, which for the most part is just a straightforward overview of the investigation, yes. which I, I quite liked. Like, I thought that gave the series more credibility just to start with that sober, straightforward overview of what happened. And I, I just found it really interesting too, because, you know, there's a lot of kind of canonical true crime cases that we both looked into but i didn't know much about this one and it was interesting like among other things it, it really clarified to me like how much son of sam was kind of like an east coast version of zodiac yes so like he targeted lovers lanes you know, his letters and his games with the police were very similar. But also the... What's the main guy's name? The... Maury Terry, like, he reminded me a lot of Robert Graysmith. Like, yes. his voice... So Robert Graysmith wrote the two books on Zodiac. He's played by Jake Gyllenhaal in the David Fincher film, and he's responsible for the main theories about Zodiac. And both... Like, the voice or the kind of persona of Maury Terry here... Reminded me a lot of Robert Gray just because both were not kind of conventional journalists. So Terry had a background in IT. Graysmith was a cartoonist, and the show, the series, quite pointedly contrasts Terry with another journalist, um, Jimmy Breslin, who's a regular tabloid journalist. So you got, oh, yeah, yeah. So so you got you got you got this kind of killer who targets people in Lovers' Lanes, who plays games with police, and you have this kind of. figure who becomes fascinated with him who's operating on the fringes Mm. of journalism it it, it Mm. was so uncannily similar Mm. and yet and yet different so i mean part of what yes that was similar but so much of zodiac is about that dispersed north bay area landscape so Mm. vallejo like napa And, you know, one of the big speculations about him was he was drawn to places where there was lots of water, whereas here you kind of have someone with Zodiac's MO, but it's kind of all in a city. Yes. So it's like the way in which Son of Sam deals with that is to kind of almost drift out, you know, to those areas, like, say, where the Bronx moves towards, like, he drifts towards areas like where the Bronx becomes Westchester County or where Queens becomes long island like he's he's drawn to that he's (laughs) He's a flaneur well it's it's like his crimes are so dispersed they almost need a kind of exurban space to really work so he's always drawn to those fringes of the boroughs, apart from these occasional really dramatic incursions back into the inner city like brooklyn so it's like you have this sprawling serial killer this peripatetic serial killer but in a kind of inner city context Mm. so it made sense that he came from yonkers like Mm. he came from upstate new york like it's the zodiac is so much about that dispersed Mm. space Mm. whereas this is like the same mo but with a slightly different urban landscape Mm. like i found that really interesting and kind of scary like you know if you're in the bay area at the time like there are relatively easy ways to avoid zodiac you Mm. just you don't go anywhere by yourself you don't go and park in remote places i mean. But it's here because it's the inner city. There's only so much no, people could do. There was so, an inescapability of the, of the violence, yeah. here, definitely. So that, that I found interesting. It was like Zodiac, a response to Zodiac, but in a slightly different urban environment mm. that made it scarier mm. in a way. Yeah, which came first? I think they're roughly contemporary. So Zodiac is like seventy-one to seventy-five, I think, and Santa Sam is about the same period. Mm. So you wonder, the were, you wonder whether they were, and you wonder whether they're aware of each other. Yeah. And
1: the, the apogee. This was really the apogee of the serial killer.
0: Absolutely, and and that idea of this that the particular brand of serial killer who played games mm. and who developed persona, like they mm. both developed persona for themselves. They both kind mm. of had coded messages. Mm. So that, isn't it funny? Like I found that really interesting on its own terms, above and beyond the particular theories of Terry. Yeah. Well, the, the particular but, theories are but not, not, not really, really given, articulated. No, no, they're not really
1: given much airing at all in this pilot, and that's really what. Had me a little concerned yes. about this series. Yes. So I like Netflix true crime series where they stick to the facts. Mm. They use the talking heads. They they use the drone shots to establish mm. atmosphere. They they effectively interrogate the investigation. Mm. I don't like it so much when they engage or like they indulge. When they play games. Not even engage, indulge in consp- conspiratorial thinking. Mm. Um or so, fantastic thinking. So, like.
0: so I remember you said that you watched um what's the documentary about the woman in the tank in the hotel? Yes. See, yeah, the I Cecil Hotel. I only watched the pilot of that partly because I'd heard the story on another podcast. But I remember you said that it was a bit of a bait and switch yes. structure to it towards the end. Yes. And I feel the
1: same thing here and uh, like I mean the way this guy is framed, obviously by his friends and colleagues, Maury Terry is as a really credible journalistic source mm. in some respects, but like you said, he comes from a pretty, pretty marginal journalistic background. Mm. Uh, didn't really have any connection to the case except for the the coincidence that he happened to be a resident of Yonkers. Mm. So, that,
0: sorry, just as an aside, that's an incredible scene, isn't it? When they trace David, because they, it's incredible that they found out about son of Sam through parking tickets. Yes, and again, that kind of mapping, urban yes. mapping. Um, but it's incredible when they trace him to that apartment building in Yonkers and interview his neighbours? Yes. That's just an aside. That's a great bit of footage. But
1: in some ways, I think the kind of banality of David Berkowitz Mm. and especially the banal way in which he was caught Mm. might have given rise to these kind of more bizarre fantasies of uh, larger conspiracy just because the conclusion wasn't as grandiose as the journey in some respects. Like the... Compare that, for example, to the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. That had such mm. an incredibly Exotic. cinematic ending with him racing through being the pursued. projects in some ways or, on foot or, and being arrested by members of the public.
0: Or someone like Ted Bundy with a flight to Florida or yeah. someone like Zodiac where there is no resolution. Exactly. Yeah, there I agree. This is that's a, that's a really good way to kind of differentiate. This is probably the kind of canonical crime of the 70s that has the most banal resolution yes even though the parking ticket thing is fantastic yes as a, as a forensic yes. tool but i, I yes. agree yeah
1: yeah i i think that's right and i think maybe that that's given rise to something that terrorized the city how could it be from someone who mm. was so in some ways disappointing in person mm. someone who was like quite short quite squat you know postal worker mm. in some respects and and at least in the pilot, the evidence that that he kind of furnishes, Maury Terry, as to why there's a larger satan, satanic conspiracy, mm. is pretty
0: weak. So I'm I'm in two minds about that. So I definitely agree with you that there is this kind of subgenre of true crime that takes stories that are maybe more suited to to a film or to a podcast and pads them out yeah. with endless speculation. Yeah. So this could be that. I just got a bit of a different vibe from it, like I got more of a methodical vibe, like I didn't find the evidence that unconvincing, just because I sensed it was just a piece of it, and it was more like they were establishing the story programmatically and methodically so that they could make the conspiracy land later on, and I got a bit curious and looked it up, and it did seem like at the time there were quite a few suggestions that he hadn't acted alone, but no clear evidence, so... I'm in two minds. Like I, I think it could definitely go the way you're saying. I just think if you've got
1: good evidence, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to okay. show it in that first, that first pilot. Because to me, really, mm. the only evidence that was shown was that there were a series of composite sketches that didn't necessarily look like David Berkowitz. Mm. They kind of and mostly I, did.
0: And I have to say. Yes, exactly. The the twist at the end is that the composite sketch supposedly looks like his neighbour. It, it looks nothing like his neighbour. <laughs>
1: also, the photo they were using of the of the neighbour was so was so
0: blurry and, and I, indistinct. And you know, this is a bit of a spoiler, but you know, they a lot of the imagery that David Berkowitz uses comes from people who live behind him, behind yes. his apartment block. I don't think that implicates them. I mean, you can imagine the mind of a no. serial killer. They're going to be... It's, exactly. not, it's not rational. No, I mean, like, so, he blamed
1: his dog. I mean, did the dog... Was the dog part of the satanic yeah. conspiracy in some respects as well? I think just... The dog was giving him orders.
0: Maybe maybe <laughs> I'm taken with, you know, being having read a lot of... You know, like, like you, having read a lot of true crime, and not saying I've read more, but, like, I'm drawn to methodical stuff. Like, there's a certain kind of methodical true crime... That I trust and that I prefer to flashy stuff. And just because the majority of this pilot was so methodical and was so kind of schematic, I feel I kind of trust it enough to watch a bit more. Okay. I think and to see how it goes. I think the, I think for, I think I'm going to watch on the second episode. Will be the litmus test. It will be the make break. Yeah, I, I just I I
1: have a very low tolerance for conspiracy theorising. Well, generally, especially when it comes to crime
0: of a certain kind. Of a certain yeah.
1: kind. I think Zodiac, where we don't actually know the, yeah, the killer sure. and. You know, there is so much ambiguity, and he clearly encoded sort of puzzles in the mm. in the in his offending. He's, he's
0: like the Ulysses. <laughs> that's right. Of true crime. He's that's like right. the James Joyce. That's right. Of true Whereas,
1: crime. I think David Berkowitz was maybe.
0: Uh, there is a lot of different
1: interesting psychological um, mm. theories about why he committed these crimes, mm. and Mind I think, does a really good job of interrogating some of those. And yes. In fact, in fact, uh, challenging this whole satanic mm. interpretation of his offending really. Instead, viewing it as just a pathetic Jewish guy who couldn't get laid,
0: and, and that is something that Mind, I mean, you know, bring back to Zodiac and Fincher. That is something Mindhunter does so well—both the terror, but also the banality yes. of the serial killer as a yes. figure in American culture yeah. at that and time.
1: They, they puncture the aura of David mm. Berkowitz in a pretty, in a pretty profound, Probably more so than any way. of the others. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe coming off the back of that, I found this this quite grand serpentine conspiracy Mm. of satanists or wherever it's for it's foreshadowing um really implausible okay and just yeah got my hackles up to a certain extent interesting
0: so So i think i'm slightly different i i was kind of i i I liked i appreciated the overview of the case and i was intrigued by the conspiracy and i I actually liked the artful way it just bookended things but i agree with you it could go south pretty quickly um see i'm i'm in but it's depended on the second episode you're in on sam not so much the suns yeah (laughs) well the suns (laughs) is interesting too but yeah depending on how the second one goes but also just shout out how good again is summer of sam i mean that's i think that is the best spike lee film it's such a good film the sun belongs to him yep that 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 year (laughs) the sun summer belongs to sam we used to say that all the time (laughs) cool okay on to our third show for this week so this, show, I guess, is it, it reminded me a bit of mosaic in that it's it's kind of a composite text in a way. So, it's been screened on binge as a four-part television series, mm. but you can easily see it being screened as a film mm. at like festivals.
1: Well, it's it's called a film. It's called in a some film. Respect. So it's uh, at the beginning in the intertitles it says, um, "A film by Rail
0: Peck." So. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So. But yeah, but it is also, yeah, so exactly. So it's that kind of, it's, it's discrete in discrete parts, but it also could work as a film. And again, in the same way that you saw Mosaic at the Sydney Film Festival, I can see this being screened at festivals. Yes, definitely. So in a way, it's like an extension of the concerns in I Am Your Negro, Raul Peck's film about James Baldwin. Um, it's called Exterminate All the Brutes. Mm. And it's a history of... I guess um, the way Peck describes it is it's a history of civilization, colonisation, extermination. So it's a kind of global and historical look at colonisation across different nations, different eras, different moments in history. And as that might suggest, a lot of it is driven by juxtaposition, montage, editing. Mm. And it, it made me think of this thing that's become big in history teaching at high school and at university called big history. Have you heard of this thing? It's, the
1: big ideas.
0: Yeah, it's actually
1: extracted from the specifics. Yeah, like it's the big currents in history. It's
0: actually a, it was it was. I'm just looking it up just to recall. Myself. It, it was developed by a particular history academic. Um, I'm just looking up who who kind of patent, like developed it at a university and then went on to went on to go like it became a thing that he then taught in schools and it became an actual school program. I'm just looking up on, like, there, there are different... Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so, so these are, these are the, the six stages in big history. The universe appears, stars are born, stars die, Earth is created, life appears on Earth, humans appear so it's it's it, it's often taught in history curricula and you know, it's high school and university, but it takes history starting at the big bang and then often divides yeah, isn't human that science well it, so, so it's it's interdisciplinary, so it kind of sees science as a part of history and it often subdivides human history into things like agriculture, colonization, acquisition of language so right. it kind of felt like this was drawing on that version of history <laughs> like is this
1: is this uh, a unique idea or is this just the the um, the context of those kind of New York Times no, 100 bestseller lists like uh, no, it, Yuval it, Harari books. It,
0: it was developed, I forget his name, it was developed by I think a European academic and then kind of patented. So it's taught okay. in schools all over the world. And there's a specific curriculum that goes with it. And there are 10 stages that are generally taught, like starting with the Big Bang and then stuff like agriculture colonisation. So this... This has a similar kind of cosmic sweep to it. You know, yeah. It it's, it's colonisation writ large. Yes. Like, it's not just colonisation the last 100 years, 150 years. It's almost like colonisation is a fact of human history. Mm. And it has, you know, a really provocative but I think also powerful thesis that colonialism, you know, purports to be about removing barbarism, mm. but actually colonialism is is the most barbaric act that a human can commit or one of the most, like colonialism is an expression of barbarism mm. it's one of the most barbaric things that one group of people can do to another so it's it's really interesting the way in which it draws um, links between different times and places and different situations and it's interesting too in that it gives a bit of a potted history of ideas around race Mm. blood whiteness it it situates them in the spanish inquisition
1: i think if you're going to really boil down the central thesis, Mm. well the central driving idea of this series is actually not colonialism at all i think it's race yeah racism sure yeah it's like what is the origin of racism like why is it that you know the vagaries of skin pigmentation mm. have become so reified now into racial categories. Absolutely. And yep. and their ongoing you know duration mm. throughout human history. Yep. So yeah, I think the colonialism is a bit of a ruse. For that's really what we're looking at. Here. Yeah, true. And that's an, true. That's an example of an extension of
0: that. And maybe yeah, maybe I mean it's, it's also the kind of TV show that it's hard to tell what each episode will be about because it's quite impressionistic. So maybe what you're seeing in this first episode. Is, is a fo- is more of a specific focus on colonisation, yeah. which will then turn into more general stuff about race. Mm. Look, I thought that the project was really noble mm. and I thought that a lot of the editing and juxtaposition was really powerful. I actually thought Raoul Peck's voiceover detracted from it significantly. So I remember you had a comment about I'm not your negro, which I, I thought was like really, I, I agreed with, which was that You know, James Baldwin is such an incredible and fascinating kind of person, and the footage of him is so galvanising and electrifying. But that there was there was something about the way in which Peck, like obviously a part of Peck's project, is inserting himself Mm. into the story, and you know, and making it about him, making it clear this is not some objective, detached white perspective. Mm. But I do think there there are there are times when his story can actually occlude the stories he's telling. Yes. there's a, really, there's a really powerful opening scene here which it performs a kind of meta-history where a woman who's an actress talks us through a scene we're about to see, talks about her racial heritage, talks about her relationship to the scene, talks about the way in which a scene has been staged. And it just really concisely and beautifully captures the relationship between race and representation. Yes. But as it turns out, she's the only character well, oh, so she's the only person, and her character is the only character when she performs a character who has anything resembling a first-person account apart from Peck. Yes. So we have this incredible opening of this person's discussing what their voice means in this complex and interesting way. But from then on, it's all Peck just talking about his experience and giving a voiceover, which, to be honest... I think is like a little bit turgid. He doesn't have a great voice
1: for it. Well, I, I just he certainly I, doesn't have Morgan Freeman's voice. Well, I, I, I just <laughs> very think gravelly. He,
0: I just think his style is kind of turgid and a bit pontificating. And that's not like at all to dismiss the importance of the subject matter. But what I would have actually liked to see was more first-person testimony. I mean, it's so powerful, that first bit with this woman. But from then on, I kind of feel like his voice actually ends up occluding a lot mm. of the other voices he's trying to bring into it.
1: Yeah. Well, I think in, in some ways this this is a series that aspires to be essayistic.
0: Yeah, and I, and I heard it described as like a visual podcast, yes. which I think is a good yes. description.
1: Yeah, like in some ways it wants to be essayistic, but it's it's almost too programmatic for that. Yes. And in some ways it comes off as a kind of denunciation or a kind of it's Jeremiah. A, it's a polemic. Yeah, a polemic or a Jeremiah I, against against colonialism. So... In the way that an essay is kind of balanced, mm. nuanced, addresses different multiple perspectives, mm. this doesn't engage with that. Instead, this is... this is It's history kind of distilled down to a kind of large, loud condemnation.
0: It's big history in that sense, I think.
1: Well, if big history is simplistic history... Yeah, like, yeah I think it I is. Then I think, yes.
0: You see, I, I didn't have a problem with the polemic because I think the subject is worthy of polemic. I just thought that... A, I just thought the actual wording of the polemic was had this really quasi literary, and kind of just sententious kind of style, which offset the urgency of it. But also, I I, I thought what we were going for at the beginning of the pilot, or at the beginning was a kind of collective polemic where you'd have multiple voices from mm. different context Because I think one of the things it does really well is that it, it works, you know, at least in the opening stages, and towards the end as a kind of history of race on film. So it incorporates clips from like films as diverse as On the Town, Apocalypse Now, The Time Machine, The Island of Dr Moreau. And it really deftly draws out, you know, the way in which in some cases assumptions about race are hidden, but in other cases, just crazy racist stuff hides in plain sight. And I thought that focus on representation was really interesting and was a kind of a a counterpart to this opening scene where the woman talks about her complex relationship with with kind of race and representation mm. here's my background here's why I'm not normally represented here's why I've chosen to play this slightly different character here's the set here's what, like I thought there was there were moments when it was like deconstructing the way in which race is represented in such an interesting way mm. and with the assistance of first person testimonies so I just I didn't mind the polemic so much I just felt that his voice was very all-encompassing for a show that was so dispersed and sprawling. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's right. And I think, I think in, in some respects, starting with his... Well, maybe not even starting with it, but integrating his autobiography was interesting because he, he clearly has a very interesting mm. autobiographical perspective. Clearly someone who, who is Haitian mm. by, um, by birth but grew up in the Congo... Mm and also was raised and schooled in the united states mm. so clearly one of the driving questions of this is how did i be how did i come to be here mm. how was someone with my cultural and racial background mm. emerged in sure. in, this, in this new world context and in some ways he's kind of kind of tracing the, the different discrete currents of history mm. in some ways that led him to this this particular unique mm. embodied position and i thought that was that was noble in its intent sure but
0: i mean, Inter- I think the project of inserting yourself as an honesty to that. Yes, that's right. And it's especially urgent when you're in a minoritized position. So of course, that's I important, was, yeah, I thought that was important very important part of the project. But there's this kind of metafictional
1: quality to a lot of this hmm. this series that runs counter or contrary to I think the thrust of the the story hmm. in a particular way. And also just like distantiating viewers of viewer in some ways. It makes it kind of more an abstract, dry exercise when so, it could be more meaningful and so personal in by, some
0: ways by metafictional do you mean the scene like the josh hartnett scene well, the scenes where
1: they break the fourth wall right the scenes where you know, they, they sort of play around with the montage mm-hmm. in some respects like the, the kind of incongruous cutting between pop culture and you know diagrams showing the the decimation of the north american indian population that like i i don't know there's there's a kind of Look, uh, a kind of looted, a playful quality, a ludic quality, which I just don't think works in that, in that context. I, I
0: hear you. So I, I kind of... I think my opinion is similar in some ways and different in others. I agree. At times, those are a little bit gimmicky, a bit like Errol Morris mm. kind of stuff. But I thought actually that sense of unexpected juxtaposition was the strength of the series. Like, I liked that meta or meta-historical quality. I liked the unexpected juxtapositions. I mean, I, I liked... I liked it as a kind of like as an impressionistic tapestry of race and of the kind of and, and an evocation of the complex ways in which race and racism are embedded in everyday life. And I liked the breaking of the fourth wall for people like especially that opening woman, but also you know that kind of slippery space between fiction and reality. I think I think for me the main issue was that you just had that with you know for a show that was about um, I guess the subaltern and about people on the margins you had this voiceover that was i thought very very cent- like not central is a wrong word but just very very i uh, just occluded i thought that mm. the, the, the diverse for for a series that was so much about unusual and diverse and provocative juxtaposition juxtaposition the voiceover made it very one note mm. and often kind of spelled out what was actually already implicit like mm. at its best i thought this was almost like a wonderfully provocative and disturbing experimental film about race, mm. but the voiceover just really bogged it down, and I, I didn't think it was the most elegant way to insert himself. I mean, I mm. found it a bit mansplaining. I don't yeah. know how else to put it. No, I, I agree. I think in some in some respects
1: it was too polemic, In other respects it was too digressive. So it didn't. It, I don't think it ever really embodied the kind of programmatic history of race and colonialism that it wanted to be.
0: In some respects. Mm. I, it did remind me of the James Baldwin. Film. I mean, James Baldwin is such a phenomenal, such a visionary kind of person. I, I just I felt uneasy about the way in which. It's a really complex thing to talk about because obviously Peck's story is part of Baldwin's story, and it's it's he, he's had every right to insert himself. But I felt a little bit uneasy about the way in which he used Baldwin for his own political yeah, platform. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love Baldwin yeah. so much. I just yeah. I, I thought. I think as well... Do you know I, what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I thought it at some point, well, this is kind
1: of entertaining, but it's like, does, does it work as an educational document? Mm. And I thought, would I, would I show this to a group of students? Mm. And I decided that I wouldn't mm. because I don't think it's necessarily historically accurate. I think it is grossly simplistic. And I think it's like assuming that there's an exterminationist logic behind every act of colonisation is wrong. Like I just I you know while mm. I agree that it's certainly a nice corrective mm. to to introduce and to kind of I suppose in, invert the kind of demonisation mm. of the other in some respects mm. and to kind of impose the mm. the barbarity the barbaric lens onto mm. onto the Western powers in some respects this is a pretty grossly simplified version of the kind of very complex relationship of coloniser and colonised yeah. across the world in uh, some respects. And look, I
0: guess the response would be well that complexity is so often invoked as a way of avoiding discussing the hard stuff so like I I I didn't I I didn't mind that polemic and that rhetorical simplification and demonization I think for me it was just I I didn't find his voice that compelling like I just Mm. for me like just the voice I know know I'm banging on about this the voiceover just took me out of it I just I felt that for a show that started with this incredible sequence of a like an indigenous woman talking in a complex way in an interesting mm. way about her heritage it just kind of all became about yeah. him which yeah. i know is part of the point but i didn't think needed to be yeah. the point to that extent
1: what did you so another interesting element of this of this i suppose you would call it a documentary is the i suppose filmic mm. recreations that punctuated in with, some respects with Josh Hartnett. within with Congress, so his best role since Hollywood Homicide. His Josh best Hartnett. role since Hollywood Homicide. And I guess he plays White Devil, or, or colonizer. He plays a yeah, kind of the colonizer, colon- the colonizer in capital. Yeah, I, C.
0: I thought. I thought they really worked. I mean, I thought they were haunting. Like we, I mean, we so often see the colonial moment kind of contextualised in in a narrative, usually a white narrative, I thought there was something really haunting about just seeing these fragments of colonial violence from the perspective of Indigenous and First Nations people. I mean, it is Josh Hartnett, (laughs) so it was a bit hilarious to see him.
1: I thought they were absurd and and ridiculous. I mean, the way both of these, these particular recreations work is that they're really fragmentary. There's like yeah. there's like one minute. They're basically like one to two minutes. And both of them end with him shooting, you know, a subaltern
0: in the head. So it's, I guess, it's
1: just I oh, I just found them absurd. They didn't add anything you see, to this documentary I, I at I f- all. I
0: guess I found that's the kind of image that we normally see embedded in a narrative, embedded in a painting. I thought the very that very fragmentary that very fragmentary quality, just seeing it for a minute at a time captured the horror and the surrealism of it in an effective way. I mean, and I agree, you know, for people of our generation, it's weird seeing Josh Hartnett <laughs> in this series. But, no, I thought they worked. I mean, I liked I liked the kaleidoscope of it. I thought that was really compelling. I just, yeah, I don't know. Like, I there was just something, maybe as, as you've said, there was something about the tension between this highly polemic style and this highly evocatory, evocative kaleidoscopic style that was just a bit uneasy at times or mm. i mean a, a simpler way of putting it is his subjects were so interesting i would have liked to see them speak mm. for themselves yeah and again like maybe that's how i felt about watching i'm not your negro like i just felt this uneasy feeling that that baldwin wasn't being permitted to speak for himself no. as much as another documentarian might have let him um yes. and again like i yeah so look i i i'm i'm curious to watch more of it i'll probably watch mm. one more episode but mm. i yeah. I, I kind of feel like his project of inserting himself into the story would be more engaging if it didn't occlude the voices of the people mm. he's purporting to platform. Yeah. I guess is the way I would put it. Sure.
1: I, I think I'd just boil it down to I'm not a big fan of polemics. Yeah. I'm not not a big fan of this polemical stuff. And I'm particularly not not a fan of polemics that are interspersed with quite pretentious metafiction. Sure, well. and look, so, you know, I mean, I think that's yeah.
0: that's a fair response to a tele. I mean, you know, a polemic as a television program is not the most no. engaging thing to watch in some no. ways. No, I, I mean, and maybe, yeah. Anyway, I, I, again, like the pole- maybe it's not so much polemic, but his particular kind of polemic, the but this kind of. Yeah. Anyway, this slightly sententious mansplaining voice, which just didn't particularly work for me. But look, I think it's a really interesting
1: project. I, I think it's certainly it, yeah. Look, it is certainly interesting. I think the underlying, you know, once you you know you penetrate past the voiceover and past the yep. kind of quite arbitrary creations, mm. the information, while selective, mm. is is very interesting. And the you know the shocking the shocking facts on the ground, yep. you know, do speak for themselves in some respects. And that's partly why I think well these do these these facts kind of do speak for themselves so if mm. you just assembled them in in a way that allowed them to speak mm. it would be more effective for your purposes so and, I,
0: and i and i i'll kind of yeah i'll extend that to or accompany that with if the, the people had had more of a chance to speak on their own terms mm. that's mm. what i would have found compelling i i, I at first I envisage it as a kind of collective polemic which mm. i thought would have been really powerful so Interesting. I'm just not sure his style of documentary I'm especially into.
1: No, no. I've seen a few of his films and I, I have to say, well, it's an interesting project, but it's it's certainly not for me. So I'm a hard out
0: for mm. this one. I'm a provisional in, but yeah, I understand where you're coming from.
1: Okay. Fresh from the archives mm. this week, Billy. So this was my suggestion mm. and the suggestion was Alex Garland's Devs. Mm. So Devs was a a drama that was one season long. I'm not aware of whether it's been renewed. Mm. Uh, it filmed in 2020. Remember, you're
0: saying this is probably the the very cusp of an archive choice. That's right. It came out That's just right. be- just before
1: we started the podcast. Just before we started the pilot, and yeah, so the first episode was actually broadcast on 5 March 2020. So mm. just before the pandemic, really. Mm really uh, started to bite.
0: It's funny to think, respects. isn't it? I mean, we're watching it now in 2021, but for some people, this will be like, to them, it will be like Servant to us. It'll be a series that will be forever associated with the pandemic. Yes, This early... will be, it'll be a pandemic text for some people. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So That was M. Night Shyamalan Servant for us, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's right. Okay. So uh, this concerns Lily Chan, a computer engineer, and basically uh, she suspects a computing firm called Amaya you might substitute in here Google, Facebook, whatever mm. you want. Uh, of being involved in her boyfriend's Sergei's disappearance, so a lot of this pilot is her setting out to investigate mm. its CEO, played by Nick Offerman, and find out the truth behind his mysterious vanishing. Mm. So this is a series that received quite a great deal of critical acclaim when it was first released. Mm very high profile mm. and a number of the, cl- the cast particularly Nick, Nick Hoffman are, mm. are fairly high profile as well but probably the most high, high profile of all was the series creator mm. Alex Garland mm. famous for a series of very very uh, high I suppose you call them hard sci-fi this, text is cer- text this is like,
0: certainly of a piece with those so definitely like so ex, ex mach- machina annihilation and, annihilation. and the um, beach to some extent too. Yeah, yeah yeah.
1: so so yeah started out as a writer later became a director but mm-hmm. has found a particular niche in this kind of hard sci-fi you know plausible realistic science and technology and it's, driven it's, it's visions to, of it, a near future
0: and it's it's so unusual isn't it to encounter a writer who becomes a director who actually has that visual sense absolutely I mean this is this is it's almost like he's a writer who was always meant to be a director
1: yes that's right that's right so I'm, I'm interested to hear what you, you think about Debs, mm. but I think there's a couple of things that uh, standouts mm. in this particular pilot. So I think the first is the, is the surreality mm. of a lot of it. The pilot starts out with a montage, uh, basically a series of abstract cubes, you know, a la Oh, circa 2001, a space a la, odyssey. A la, <laughs> a
0: la Cube. A la Cube. A the film Cube. A lot of
1: abstract imagery. Yep. S- shots of the San Francisco skyline mm. almost refracted through this, this abstract imagery, mm. scored to you know uh, Buddhist chanting mm. in some respects. It, it has a, a quite ethereal quality in some respects. Mm. And we see a slow transition from San Francisco and almost a kind of psychic journey mm. between San Francisco and the kind of heart of contemporary kind of technological mm. capitalism in some mm. respects, which is Silicon Valley. Now, mm. something this series does is endow the space of Silicon Valley and in particular the Amaya campus with this, this incredible sublimity mm. in some respects. And that's that's really characterised by the, the giant sculpture of the little girl that, mm. that punctuates the Amaya campus. Mm. That that I think is one thing that it does particularly strikingly. The other, I suppose, is the the way it constructs this this journey mm. into, I suppose, the the core of the Amaya campus, mm. which is the mysterious Devs facility. Dev's project. And
0: And it's maybe worth saying that, you know, the focus shifts a lot. So it starts about it starts with the main character appearing to be this young Ingenue who's, you know, graduates into the dev's the dev's part of the, the compound. Then something weird happens to him. Mm. He's found dead in a very mysterious way. And then his girlfriend is now going to become the main character. So it really displaces the focus yeah, of that's what you right. think it's going to be.
1: That's right, that's right. So it, it does. It's a little bit of a red herring in some mm. respects, isn't it, this mm. pilot? And the way it's set it's up, very cryptic structure. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And you have to say that cryptic quality applies almost to every single aspect of this pilot. Absolutely, I think in the best possible way. Mm. It withholds at all the right moments that you want it to withhold. Mm. I think so. In some respects, there's a great deal of mystery about what goes on in Devs, devs. This, this this building. Interestingly, we actually go into the building. Mm. But we don't necessarily learn what what goes on. No, it's we very
0: it's very opaque. Yeah, we don't. We, while
1: we do find out what happens to Sergei, mm. we don't really know why. Mm. And in terms of, I suppose, the relationship between Sergei and Lily, there's there's an opacity to it. Mm. And in particular, there's a kind of opacity to a lot of the performances here as well. Mm. So Nick Offerman, it's very hard to read people. Yeah, that's right. He generally plays a very gregarious mm. character. In some in some respects, he plays a kind of postmodern boss, mm. you know, advocating for yeah. open plan offices. I think it's
0: an excellent role for Nick Offerman. I feel like a lot mm. of roles he's had since Parks and Recreation, he's been trying to kind of recapture that Ron Swanson character. Whereas <laughs> here, it really works.
1: Yeah, that's right. He has a kind of bug eyed. Uh, Credulity to him in some Mm. respects, but also a sense of that that laden aggression that that Ron Swanson Mm. had absolutely uh, is also is also present as well. So he plays a kind of uh, in some very enigmatic Mm. um, genius inventor slash CEO slash maverick, Mm. Um, and while yeah, you do get that sense of that immediate sense of kind of. uh, presence of a nick Hoffman. there is he's definitely withholding a lot in this and and that plays out in the narrative yeah Yeah. absolutely so Mm. i think that was quite striking but also just the the affectless way that a lot of the actors approach this performance absolutely in particular the sergey character lily chan character Mm. a lot of the supporting characters in the in the um the amaya campus Mm. there's a blankness to them Mm. there's a kind of robotic or mechanical Mm. um Feeling to a lot of their their interactions. Mm. There's a blankness more generally to this, which is punctuated by the kind of surrealistic style in which it's shot. It
0: makes it very intriguing. The story. That's mm. right.
1: That's right. So, to me at least, this is set up a lot of the coordinates for what mm. I want in a pilot: mm. an incredibly intriguing, enigmatic, enigmatic mystery, uh, wrapped in a kind of very evocative sense of place mm. and space. And with some actors, you know, some some you don't. Mm and at least this, this classic sort of Alex Garland, hard sci-fi mm. energy that flows
0: all the way through it. Mm. What did you think? Look, I hated it. Whoa. No, I'm just kidding. I loved it. I just wanted to see your reaction. So, look, I, I thought this was... I think this is possible. I wanted to see how you reacted to that. That's why I was waiting. I was waiting for you to ask <laughs> right. me. So I could say, yeah, I'll just... yeah. Um, look, I think this is possibly the most beautiful pilot we've seen visually and the most cinematic pilot we've seen. So I mm. think it's it's remarkable. I mean it's it is so hard for science fiction in the digital era to make spaces and situations seem genuinely futuristic. Mm. And the best kind of science fiction I think is kind of wonder at space. Yes. So at outer space, at futuristic spaces. So this this series brims with just incredible, unbelievable spaces. Yes. And the images are so incredible, like the way it's shot. Like it it looks like images that you see on TV screens at television stores, but like not in a generic way, like in a a kind of incredibly textural, like hypertextural way. Like it's like tactile. Yes. It's hyperreal. It's hyperreal. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I, I almost thought like the phrase I was thinking of was like, it's kind of hypernatural. It's like hypernaturalistic. It's almost like Alex Garland's brand of, brand of science fiction creates a renewed wonder around nature. Mm. So, in in all his kind of stories, the natural world becomes just a kind of set of predictive algorithms, mm. and you know, not in a simplistic way, but in in a complex, fractalated kind of way. So, literally, and you've seen Annihilation. I have, yes. So, I you loved know, Annihilation. yeah. So, part of the premise of Annihilation is there's this event off the coast of California that causes the genetic codes of different organisms to blend into each other. So you get a kind of fractalated nat- kind of natural texture. So he it has this kind of hypernaturalism where you kind of feel the presence of technology through this heightened awareness of nature mm. as a series of predictive yes. algorithms. So there's this incredible, like, aura and reverence around the natural world in his films, like that... You know that kind of forest outside that outside the kind of um, outside the bunker in Ex Machina, the zone in Annihilation, and it's almost like his his films revolve around spaces that abstract and intensify the natural world in a really enhanced way. So mm. I'm a big fan of like Land Art, 1970s Land Art, and a lot of it looks like Land Art. Like it reminded me of like the huge kind of abstract sculptures of donald judd at martha Martha, texas or the lightning field like walter de maria like you have these the structures in his films are almost like works of land art like james terrell like they're like pieces of land art that intensify your awareness of the natural world Mm. and and nature kind of looks so much more complex and so much more textural in his films and tvs in this tv series it really so i mean in that sense the structure of what's the company called like so the structure of its campus really makes sense like you have the main building and then you have this forest between the main building and the devs compound Mm. and the forest is full of these trees like beatified trees like these trees with halos around them Mm. so it's like there's this kind of quasi-religious forest in between Mm. the two you know you have to pass through this forest to get to devs so it's like whatever whatever else devs does it makes you aware of nature in this way that's kind of both kind of technological but also mystical mm. and there's, there's the musical kind of sounds new age mm. and like a lot of you know i love my Enya. like a lot of new age music the music is kind of like natural and synthetic at mm. the same time so i was well, just i, it, it, I was it, blown it, away yeah. by how it looked i love it, it. makes sense when you see for example
1: like i like that that sense that it's it's almost like aspiring to be a, a TV demonstration. Yes. In some ways, when TVs want to demonstrate their technological prowess, they often show natural scenes. Yes. Because of the incredible complexity and sophistication yep. of the,
0: I suppose the the image in some respects and the and the constituent parts that. Yes. That, and, form it. and it's kind of uncanny like you know in a lot of science fiction you think science fiction is about the artificial it's mm. about the artifice and even when you see classic science fiction films about cyborgs say or robots they always have an element of artifice about it whereas for Gal- alex garland like science fiction is almost like about recovering the complexity and chaos and mm. deep mystery of nature mm. and not by mechanizing nature but making you realize that even the most complex mechanics we can come up with are already contained by nature. Yes. And there's this thing about this, like I sense this, like contemporary science fiction, there is this return to nature. So I feel like in Dennis Villeneuve's films, in Alien Covenant, there's this fixation with wet, fertile, natural kind of spaces that are kind of smooth Mm. and textural. Well, I think it makes sense. I think in some respects we're entering a stage of,
1: I suppose, our our colonization conquest yes. of nature where we actually getting to a point where we need to reverse engineer nature well, exactly. in order to ensure our survival as a species.
0: Exactly. So it feels like these films are kind of about like the Anthropocene mm. and about this sense that nature in an era of global warming and in, in an era that is you know that we now think of as the Anthropocene in which humans have irreversibly affected kind of the world and it's kind of the global ecosystem we're in an era where nature is actually the strangest and most science fictional prospect that's right. not out of space no. not stars but nature in its most pristine form and that's this, right this series just gets that so i mean, I almost wanted to watch it on a touch screen or <laughs> on a tablet just so i could touch it i mean it yeah, was incredible tactility it, it was so so mm. beautiful and mm. as, as we said earlier like i mean it is extraordinary that a writer can turn to cinema and to television with this level of visuality. And it really gets to the peculiar advantages of television, like that high, finely grained, mm. finely textural. I mean, there's such a granularity to mm. the image. Like, mm. it, it doesn't look... It's like... It's as if CGI made the image more analogue. Mm. Like, mm. the fine grain of the image is so beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. And I'll, I
1: suppose it's, it's visual or aesthetic style is neatly ties into... The plotting of Absolutely. it as well, because ultimately this series hinges on the ability of the Amaya company to try to create this predictive algorithm, yes, or in order to establish a more sophisticated form mm-hmm. of artificial intelligence.
0: It's in in a kind of in a very in a profound yet simple way, it's trying to create nature. Yes, that's right. It's trying to cre- right. create, and there's an incredible opening scene where the character has like a a simple like like nematode, worm, a the, nematode yeah, or children. maybe a platy helmet uh, <laughs> it has like a nematode like a, a kind of a, 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 a kind of underwater worm yes and he develops a predictive algorithm to show what the worm going to do 10 seconds in advance so at that literal level like it's creating yes. nature or or mimicking yes. rivaling nature
1: yes and i haven't watched any further ahead i'm not sure whether you have no either. i haven't but there's some suggestion that when they go into the devs building there's a there's an algorithm or code there that explains a lot yes a lot so what i
0: love about the devs building is the devs building is almost just like an abstraction of the spatial logic of the film like it is all kind of evocative spaces no surfaces no edges like it's it's a space that makes you so aware i mean of the natural world outside it yes in this kind of mindful way like it's do you know what i mean like and again it's hard to articulate because there's not a lot of narrative context but this kind of spatial style of the film and this focus on texture, granularity and nature, yeah. the building condenses that. Yes. The building is that at yes. some level. I think I think
1: for me, I think one of the most effective things that this series does is create a sense of the sublime. And it does Absolutely. that it does Absolutely. that in a couple of different respects. Yes. And one of the ones i think that it does or one of the aspects in which it does recreate this sublimity mm. is through the monument and yes. this series has a great sense of monumentality yes now when you think of i guess the the hubs of you know contemporary mm. capitalism you mm. think of new york and its 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 spires you mm. think of london and its kind of postmodern mm. abstract city architecture mm. silicon valley you often there isn't that same sense of monumentality to no. Silicon Valley. In some respects, it's kind of a, a bit of a blank space, uh, and, and often- this series endows Silicon Valley with that in, with that sense of lost monumentality. Yes. So, for example, the giant the giant child sculpture, mm. and in particular this this devs building, which in some respects resembles an egyptian like shrine pyramid or a tomb yeah and the other sense i got was that it's almost like a nuclear reactor in some mm. respects they describe it as being coated with a concrete sarcophagus mm. and the center of it is in is some sort of core they describe it as mm. so it's a kind of it's somewhere between a a pyramid you know a, an homage to mm. to a kind of deity and also the kind of sarcophagus, sarcophagus for keeping in keeping in the kind of malevolent deity in some respects as mm. well so it It creates this kind of tapestry or mosaic of kind of sublime um, ethereal textures. Absol- that,
0: absolutely. and like and, and and once again, like it reminds me so much like the look and style of it, of land art. So mm. like 1970s site-specific land art is all about this. So you have Walter de Maria in the middle of nowhere, sets up, you know, a thousand different poles to catch lightning. Robert Smithson builds an enormous spiral jetty in an obscure lake. James Turrell um, excavates a canyon to make a moon-viewing, like, chamber. Um, Donald Judd hires a barn in Marfa, Texas, and has fills it with just empty, minimal sculptures that look exactly like the charging devices outside the Dev thing. So it's it's that sense of, like, all that kind of land art is about building that monumentality in places that don't necessarily seem to have it in terms of Mm. human habitation but also it should have it it and creating this abstracted mindfulness around nature Mm. and i completely agree about the sublime thing i mean you know the sublime is such a difficult register to kind of nail on television. Mm. I mean, I love television, I love cinema equally, but the sublime as a register is very hard, I think, televisually. And this does it. I mean, I felt awe watching this in terms Mm. of the beauty of it. I also think it is a really well-structured pilot narratively. Mm. It's really cryptic. Like, as you said, it, it withholds stuff at exactly the right moments and it's full of like disjunctions mm. that are really unsettling and really eerie mm. and that draw you in so look i'm i think this is one of the best shows that pilots we've watched in all the the mm. podcast not just in the archive choice and i, I thought it was fantastic
1: it, in terms of ambition visually yes in terms of its
0: let's say, i think one of the most visually ambitious i yeah. would
1: say yeah conceptually yep as well and just the the larger questions that this pilot raises mm. in terms of spirituality technology nature yes um, i suppose ambition and i guess the promethean goal of this this inventor mm. in some ways as well so and
0: could you say like you know for people who are listening who are fans of annihilation ex machina the no, beach well, this is everything you would want and expect from that style as a tv series and more mm. i think it could almost end up being if it's if it maintains this quality it could be his best work mm. so i'm I thought I was blown away by how good this was. Yeah, it was I'm, fantastic. I'm a hard in. Hard in too. Um, which brings us to next week's yes. Archive Corner. So,
1: Are we going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous? Well, well, well you, <laughs> might, you
0: might regret saying that. Um, it's funny, like after watching Exterminate All the Brutes, like I, something I didn't say watching it, like I, I felt like it's also positioning itself in this lineage of sprawling series about race and mm. history. So I remember, for an example, growing up, my parents were really into I think it was like a PBS maybe Ken Burns documentary called Eyes on the Prize, which was a history of civil rights. They had the book, so that kind of sprawling history of race. So I thought next week we could look at the pilot of the miniseries Roots, which oh, is right. okay. you know which is you know it's it's often listed as one of the it's often as the best miniseries of all time, and it's it 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 kind of comes from a mode of television we haven't really touched on. In our archive corners, which I think especially flourished from, say, mid-70s to mid-90s, the high-prestige miniseries. Yes. The Stand is another example. And it's it's such a kind of cornerstone of American television. You know, you see it regularly listed as one of the 10 greatest series of all time. Yes. And I think it's generally agreed to be the best miniseries. But also as a kind of American epic, tracing a character from Africa to America. Like, it's... It, it sounds kind of fascinating. Yeah. So I thought... This is a piece with some of that
1: certain genre of film and TV, like Daughters of the Dust... And Daughters the of the color, Dust. ...and The Colour Purple, which
0: I'm not that familiar with. Exactly. And I kind of feel like there is, there is, there is something about that, that history of slavery in the Middle Passage that really lends itself to the sprawling sweep of yes. a miniseries, the ambition of a miniseries. Yes. I'm also just curious to see it. And I've got to say, a little part of me after watching Exterminate the Brutes... Wanted something a bit more embedded and a bit more embodied about yes. the same subject matter. Well, it, that will also, I think, tie in neatly
1: to one of the major series that's dropping oh, right. next week, which is Barry Jenkins'
0: oh, The Underground Railroad. Fantastic. So that'll be a really... And I wonder if we'll actually see resonances there because it seems mm. like Roots is such a... It just, it's funny, I mean, you know, we'll get on this next week, but it seems like these kind of series. and I remember just to tail into them in the early 90s, they were such a a phenomenon yes like everyone talked about them there were spin-offs there Mm. were think pieces so I feel like it must have some impact upon the Underground Railroad it must Mm. make its presence felt in some kind of way so yeah I've got a few like sitcoms and comedies up my sleeve as well but I think just this week I'm really curious to see it yeah and I've been curious to see it for a while so good choice good choice man next week we're (laughs) going to be putting down some roots (laughs) sounds good cool I'm Billy I'm Drew that was Pilot Club